again and let's open them up to Exodus chapter 20. We're one of those churches that believes the Bible, so we read it quite a bit. You may have noticed that if you're visiting. So we've turned to Exodus chapter 20 this morning. It's on page 77 in these uh, red pew Bibles. Page 77. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, and heard the trumpet, and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance, and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself. And we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word. Let's pray again, shall we? Seek his help. Father, thank you that you've spoken to us. And we ask that you would give me clarity of thought and speech as a preacher, that I may be faithful to your word. And we pray that you'd grant everyone that listens 
the ability to hear your voice clearly. Lord, you'd grant each one of us understanding. You'd direct each one of our attentions to the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And that we might find in him the consolation and comfort that we need as lawbreakers. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Polytheism would be quite a headache, wouldn't it? I don't know whether you've ever thought what it'd be like to live with the, the, the idea that there are lots of gods. I suppose some people here maybe have grown up in a Hindu environment, and that's where, where, where there's lots of gods, gods over this area, gods over that area, and all the way through history, you think about Greco-Roman times, there were all these stories of the gods, and it'd be quite a headache to try and live under that. You never know where you, where you stand with the gods. You might be in favor with one god or goddess, but that might sort of end you sort of stepping on the toes of another god or goddess. And we have on record an ancient pagan prayer. And this is how the prayer went. The transgression I have committed, I do not know. The sin that I have committed... I do not know. The God whom I know or do not know has oppressed me. The goddess that I know or do not know has brought suffering on me. Although I am constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. I weep. They do not come to my side. Mankind, everyone who exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing good, he does not even know. Well, there's a, there's a prayer. Does that give us a little insight what it would be like to live in this view that there are multiple gods out there? I mean, it's a rather pathetic prayer, isn't it? Can you see what a contrast that is to what is before us today in Exodus chapter 20? Here we have the record of the, the one true living God clearly speaking to his people. They stood before Mount Sinai which was shrouded with smoke and with fire, with lightning and thunder and and trumpet blasts. And they heard the loud voice of God speaking perfectly good Hebrew to them. Can you imagine that? What we've got here is, is the revelation of God, of God's character. It's a revelation of, of God's calling, as it were, to to the Israelites to be his holy people. And this is a huge moment in history. It is easy to forget what a unique moment this is, but if you put your finger in Exodus and turn me to Deuteronomy chapter 4, and you'll find that on page 183. So here we are in Deuteronomy chapter 4, page 183. This is 40 years later. And Moses is reminding Israel what a big deal it was in chapter 4 and verse 32. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created man on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has 
anything like it ever been heard of? Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him there is no other. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth, he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from out of the fire. This is a huge moment of God revealing himself. I mean, they'd heard Moses report to them up to this point, different things that God had told him. God had told him, and he'd gone to them and said, this is, this is what the Lord says. But now, on this day, they hear God directly. God speaks human words directly into their ears. And it just reminds us, God is personal. Uh, This is a God who made ears and minds and mouths, and this is a God who is perfectly able to reveal himself and to speak. And of course, as Christians, we, we see all the more clearly in the coming of his Son, Jesus Christ, that God has revealed himself. He doesn't leave us in the dark. We don't have to be like that poor pagan uh, centuries ago with that sort of pathetic prayer of he doesn't know where he's at. No, we, we can know perfectly where we're at with God because he has revealed himself on Mount Sinai. He's revealed himself through the coming of his son. We know exactly what he's like, what his will is. We don't need to be uncertain about what pleases him, about what angers him. This is the reason why the Psalms often have statements like this. Oh, how I love your law. They are sweeter than the honeycomb. Your commands are a light to my feet. Now, we don't think of the highway code with such sweetness because the highway code is sort of an arbitrary set of rules. The thing about uh, these laws here is that they are a reflection of God himself. They are given so that we can understand something of the character of God. And so the psalmist can say, oh, how I love, love your law. It's sweeter than honey. You know, we learn from the Ten Commandments that there is only one God. We learn that he is so glorious that that no image could possibly ever represent him adequately. In fact, every attempt dishonors him. We learn that he's so holy uh, that his name must be honored above all other names. That that he's a God who created all things in six days. and, And he's a God who rests and enjoys the labor of his hands. Isn't that great? We have a God who enjoys rest. And he so set up the world that uh, we, his handiwork, he invites us to enter into that same rest and enjoyment of him because that is the sort of God that he is. We don't rest so that we can work. Uh, We work heading forward knowing that then we rest with God. We we have a God who delights in community and so he's placed us in, in families He's the father of all mankind and so he's given us human fathers so we can begin to conceive of what it means that he is father. Uh, He gives us mothers so that we can begin to conceive those aspects of in scripture of how he nurtures and cares for his people. He's the giver of life. 
And so uh, we should not take innocent life. Every human is born in the image of God and should be respected. And, and life should be respected because God is the giver of that life. He is the author of it. Um, he is a God who is a faithful covenant-keeping God. And so he calls on his people to be the sort of people who are faithful in their marriages and in their relationships because this is what God is like. He, he's a God who, who gives all good gifts and uh, calls on us to live in dependence upon him and to trust him so that we don't have to steal. We don't have to covet. He's a God of truth. And so, uh, who will never lie to us. And so we are called to be people who don't lie. Like God doesn't lie. See, we don't have to play guessing games with God. We know where we stand. In a sense, we almost... We never have to wonder what the will of God is for our life. Sometimes we get obsessed with finding out the, the will of God for our life, to try and work out that circumstantial will. You know, should I go to this college or that college? Should I become a plumber or a doctor? Should I marry uh, that lovely Christian girl Susie or that lovely Christian girl Mary? Which should, which should I marry? And at one level, you know, the, the, it would say, it doesn't matter. The point is, be a truthful plumber. Be a doctor who doesn't take life unnecessarily. That's what matters. We have written down for us clearly uh, the character of God and the will of God. But it's important as we look at uh, Exodus 20 to see the order here. Um, Look at verse 2. Before we get into the commandments, the Lord reminds them of this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And those come before the commandments. In a sense, the grace of God rescuing them, redeeming them, precedes the law of God. These ten commandments were not given to show us how to become the redeemed people of God. They're not a ladder that we are supposed to try and climb up and see if we can possibly be good enough to, to, to be part of God's people, to be in relationship with him. God has already graciously sort of initiated a relationship with them. He, he said, I am the Lord your God. I, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. He reminds them of what he has done, the amazing things that he has done, long before uh, the demands uh, of, of what, a, what a people should look like. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. See, God's rescue and redemption really come before these requirements. I think that order is so important. People do think that somehow Christianity is about keeping lots of rules. Yeah, keep lots of rules and, you'll, and, and, and then that's what makes you right with God. Then, then you, you become good enough. Well, no, that's not what it's about. It's never been about that. Verse 2 is a reminder that God had set them free. And so these commandments are really telling them how to live as free people. He's already freed them, so he lays out for them, this is now you, how you are to live as free people. Now, this is a bit of a stretch for us today, because somewhere we've picked up the idea that freedom is about having no rules. But I want you to consider again for a moment, what a craziness that idea is. When Sharon and I uh, spent um, three or four weeks living in Pakistan, uh, we learned about the value of having rules for the road. People would drive their cars 
their bikes, their donkeys, and their camels any side of the road they wanted. I mean, there was no guarantee as you were coming along. Uh, there was no set way to go around a roundabout. You could go around it that way, that way, or straight over them. I mean, there was just no rules. And you drove on that road in constant fear and panic. There was no freedom there, my friend. <laughs> Somehow they do it. Think what a lawless society is really like. If you live in a society with a large number of people who pay no attention to any rules and do whatever they want, is that a free society? <coughs> Far from it. A lawless society is a frightening one. It's one with lots of locks, security bars, and people who fear going out at night. Can you, can you imagine a society where we actually, everybody did keep the Ten Commandments? Can you imagine what that would be like? Think of the freedom you would have. Well, there's no point locking the car, is it? I might as well leave the car keys in the ignition. No one's going to steal it. Ah, I'll just leave my front door wide open. You know, no, I don't have to worry about my stuff. Oh, think about it. You wouldn't have to remember all those passwords. <laughs> oh, I don't know about you, but it drives me crazy. All those different passwords on the website. All those PIN numbers. Oh, my goodness. You wouldn't need them. You just pop it in and take the money out. Because it would, you know, everyone's, no one's, it would be amazingly free, wouldn't it? You know, going to the shops, going, going, finding something online, going to buy something, not worrying that anyone's going to rip you off, that no one's lying to you. Oh no, this car mate has had no accidents, neither the front end or the back end. You know, you'd never have to worry about that. What freedom there would come. Obedience to the laws of God could actually be a way to enjoy life and true liberty. And so the important, it's important to see the order here, that God's grace precedes this uh, set of laws that call them into a, a life of, of, of how to live as free people. Let's think specifically in more detail about these demands. Um, somebody's calculated, I don't know how you do this, but that we've made over 32.6 million laws, and yet really we haven't been able to really sort of improve on these Ten Commandments. Each one of these commandments deserves a sermon in its own right and, and quite possibly we'll revisit them in, a, in an evening series perhaps, doing one a night. And to, today we're just going to look in an overview. And of course they divide into two blocks. The first four are about our relationship with God and, and the final six our relationship with each other. And of course the order again is very important. It is about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. That's what comes first. And then after that, loving your neighbor as yourself. But the order is very important. And as you kind of study the commandments, you just see how embracing they are of the whole of life. These commands of God, in a sense, are a claim of God upon the whole of our life. They're so comprehensive. They, they claim our worship. In the first one, you shall have no other gods before me. The God who created the universe, who, who made and kept promises to Abraham and, and led all the way to them being uh, called out of Egypt, which leads forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus. Well, he's the only God. And he should only be the one who, who, who is worthy of our worship and our obedience. All other gods are false gods and unworthy of our attention and our focus. And to view this command in a positive way, uh, in a sense it's saying all other false gods are, are unnecessary. Um, when we, we can have the true and living God to worship. 
In all his glory, why waste time with false gods? But the claim is not just to the object of our worship, but the, the manner of our worship in the second one, the second command. In verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. It's not enough to worship the correct God. You've got to worship him correctly. We're not to make any images of God that so easily can become idols that we revere and worship. And, and the reason is that at best they just can't adequately convey the glory of God. I remember when uh, in, in Spokane we were, as a church, given a church building and it was a great joy to adopt the uh, remaining members of that congregation to our congregation but they gave us this building and as we walked around the building every room had a picture of Jesus. Except Jesus looked different in every one of the pictures which is a bit confusing but I think they were supposed to be Jesus and it looked remarkably European as well lovely blue eyes and blonde hair it was quite extraordinary. And, but you know all pictures like that are useless really, aren't they? We're not given really a description of Jesus. All we need to adequately worship God is the truth of his words. Images are not there to fuel our worship. We, we are just to rely on the revelation. And then you've got the reverence, uh, importance of reverence of our worship in the third command. Um, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. As it says in verse 7, God's name is not just another word. It's, it stands for who he is. And to demean God's name is to demean God. There's no place as Christians to use the name of God as a swear word. And although I, I try not to show it, I cringe inside when I hear the name of Jesus or God being taken flippantly around me. And it's part of me that just wants to almost say, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God in saying that? Do you know how glorious he is? And you're using his name as if it was just rubbish to stamp on? But these commands are not just about our worship, but also our work. Number four, verse um, eight. He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. So there's no place for laziness and sloth here. Six days you shall do your labor and your work. But then this is a commandment about rest. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And it's, think about this. They've spent how many years in Egypt as slaves? Did they ever get a day off in Egypt? No. This is the grace and the kindness of God. That uh, continually, week after week, God invites us to taste the rest that he enjoyed when he finished creation. And, and, and this commandment, in a sense, puts work in its proper place, doesn't it? Work is not to be a tyrant over us. Work is not to be a, a constant, never-ending treadmill that we're always moving uh, to, to the next job. No, we're, we're moving to rest, these commandments say. To stop from our work every week just makes the most profound statement about the fact that work is not as important as God. Instead, we're looking to God to provide and care for us. Now, as I said at the introduction before the New Testament readings, we, we read forwards, but we understand backwards. And we've got to understand these commandments in the light of the coming of Jesus. And as you read the New Testament, 
nearly all, well, I think all but one of the commands are picked up and repeated, and if anything, intensified for the Christian. But there's one command that isn't picked up, and that is this fourth command of the Sabbath day rest. And you can read in Hebrews 3 and 4 that the Sabbath rest is, is used as a picture of heaven. So I don't think that we're under the Mosaic Covenant that we are supposed to keep Saturday as the holy day of rest. But I do think that what we have as a pattern of creation is it is a great blessing of God that he's given us that we should rest one out of seven. That we should take a day off. And why not Sunday? Why not Sunday as a place where you can meet with God's people? But I don't think that now in the coming of Christ that one day is more special than another. But why not take a day of rest on Sunday and use it to enjoy relationship with God? So these first four commands relate to our duties to God and then our duties to our neighbors. And we should notice that our first duty after our obedience to God is within the family. I think that's very significant. Once we've, 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 we've done all to obey God, the next most important thing is our duty to our family unit. Verse 12, honor your father and mother. This family obligation comes first before we consider obligations to others. And it's worth reflecting on that, whether uh, that is the way we're living our life. And in the commandments in 6 to 9, it deals with the big issues of life. Like life itself, you shall not murder. Like sexual relationships, you shall not commit adultery. Like property, you shall not steal. Like truth, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. See, what we do is important to God. Uh, The new atheists mock this notion that if there was a God, that he would care about our sexual behavior and what we do. But actually, the Bible tells us, yes, God does care. God cares about murder. God cares about adultery. God cares about theft. God cares about lies. They, They do matter to God. And not only does God care about our actions, but also our heart motivations as revealed in the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. See, God, God is looking for our worship and obedience, not just in visible actions, but in the secret desires of our hearts. And God will hold us accountable for the motivations and desires of our hearts. You shall not cover your neighbor's house or new kitchen or iPhone, although it's got a fault in it apparently, so I'm not coveting it at all. You shall not cover another man's wife or another man's car. Now these commands, they're so concise And yet the truth is that they're so comprehensive. Do you you sense that? The whole of life is covered. In a sense, God claims the whole of our life as an avenue of worship. Uh, On the weekend newspapers, they're often divided into smaller sections, aren't they? My Saturday paper's like that. There's the national, there's the international, there's the local and business, there's, there's lifestyle and technology, there's entertainment, there's, oh, there's a sports section as well, yes, and, uh, and so on. And, and every Saturday in the paper that I get, there's, there's a tiny little religious section. There's one lousy little article, and it generally is lousy. It's, not, it's very, very poor. Um, but you see what? God doesn't want to just stay in that little one column in the newspaper. These commandments say God refuses to stay in the religious section. 
You can't cordon God off. He follows us into the church building in commands one to three. He follows us into the, into the workshop and the office and the school in number four. He follows us into the family room in number five. He, he follows us into the abortion clinic in number six. He follows us into the bedroom in number seven. He follows us into the boardroom in number eight. He follows us into the courtroom in number nine and into the secret room of our hearts in number ten. God claims the whole of our life as an avenue, an arena of worship. And the truth is this. When we understand the claim of God on our lives and his expectations and standards, then these commandments will actually lead us to wear, as it were, sackcloth and ashes every day of our lives. Part of the reason that so few people are interested in the Christian gospel is that people seem to think that they're basically good people. And maybe you're such a person here today. I don't need religion, I'm a good person. And so to reveal the true problem of our human condition, I would ask you to study these Ten Commandments over this coming week and see how long you can perfectly keep all of them. Could you last a week with no lies? Could you last a week without coveting? Could you last a week without misusing the name of God? Would you last a week? Would you last a day? Would you last till tea time? The truth is that the Israelites under this Mosaic covenant could not keep it. And neither can we. And there's nothing wrong with the laws of God. The problem is our human hearts that seem so totally incapable of following these commands perfectly as we should. See, I I think a sober uh, evaluation of our lives before these commands would lead lead us to realize how completely short of God's standards we fall. How wretchedly sinful our human heart and human predicament is. And the response of our hearts would rightly be fear as we confront a holy God and his righteousness demands. Look at the response of the people in verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. What you see in verses 18 to 20 is that one of the functions of this moment uh, of the giving of the law was it's supposed to be a restraint that keeps us from sin. Look at verse 20. This is how Moses replies. He said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. I mean, the awe of seeing this sight uh, of the mountain ablaze with fire, uh, the very voice of God speaking to them, And then within it, the threat, I guess, of judgment for breaking the covenant. You see that in verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Those are sober words. And in verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. There is something about the majesty and the holiness of God that causes men and women who really understand and see it to to, to come under conviction of their sin. 
to come trembling, to be full of fear and anxiety before a holy God, confronted by his righteous demands, confronted by his laws, then, then we will all become convinced, along with Israel, that if we have any dealings with this God, we, we, we will surely die. We're finished. There's no hope for us. His holiness and our sin will mean our ruin and destruction. And such a realization calls us to cry out for a mediator in verse 21. They say to Moses, you go Moses, you, you, you speak to God and then speak to us. Look at verse 21. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. I think the more seriously that we try to fully keep the law, the more convinced we will be that, if, that there is, there's no hope unless we have a mediator. We need someone who can go between us as sinful people and this holy God who dwells in this unapproachable, thick darkness. We need not just a mediator who can kind of keep talking uh, from God to us, but we need somebody who can be a mediator who can reconcile us to this holy God. How can we ever come close to this God when he is so holy and we are so utterly incapable of keeping his commands because of our sin? How can it happen? Well, this role of Moses heading into the thick darkness is a picture that points us forward to the only mediator that really could bridge this divide between a holy God and sinful people and that is Jesus Christ. The only one who perfectly kept and fulfilled the law was the Lord Jesus Christ. Our only hope and confidence comes from trusting him who went to the cross and bore the curse of God, who bore the punishment of God that we deserve because we're covenant lawbreakers. And he bore that curse in the place of sinners. And you see, if we trust Jesus, this is the most wonderful thing. Even though we're guilty and deserving of judgment, Jesus takes that guilt upon himself and bears God's wrath in our place. And he gives us full forgiveness. He gives us his right standing before God. It is the most incredible good news. We can't live up to God's requirements. But Jesus did. In every way that we fail, in our speech, in our fidelity, in our truthfulness, he has succeeded. The only reason as Christians that we don't live in cringing fear of God is because Jesus Christ stood in our place. We sang that in the hymn just before we started. Let me remind you of one of the verses. A debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing nor fear with your righteousness on my person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. And that's what we're going to remember in a moment as we come to the table. It is my Savior's obedience and his sacrificial blood that hides all my transgressions from the view of a holy God. It is fantastic news. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, it says in Matthew's Gospel. 
And by faith in Jesus, we are made right with God. We experience the blessings of God because of his perfect obedience. See, as Christians, I don't think we live under these Ten Commandments of the Old Covenant. They were bound at that particular time. But because they are a reflection of the holy character of God, we trace them through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read our New Testament and discover these commands in the light of Jesus for us. Nowhere does the New Testament encourage us to go back to the law as the way to keep on with God. We live and serve God by faith in Jesus and in the power of his Holy Spirit. God promised in the, in, the, in the old covenant that he would bring a brand new covenant where he would write these laws on our hearts. He would give us hearts of flesh by his spirit that we would be eager to obey them. And we live as Christians as those who live by the spirit, who live by the law of Christ, of following Christ. And so what use do these commands have to us today? Well, they drive us to Jesus Christ. They drive us to Jesus to find our saviour and rescuer. And when we trust Jesus, God looks at his people as those who perfectly kept these commandments. And then in Jesus, these commands, in a sense, become promises of what God is forming in us by his spirit. Demands can be very irritating, can't they? I have about six or seven machines in my house that constantly beep at me. And finally you get up and try and work out which one it is and switch it off. Beep, 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 beep. But but in a sense, if we only see the commands as demands, they could be very irritating. But through the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have here, in a sense, promises of what God is doing in us by his Spirit. Instead of, you shall not, there is this affirmation, you shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. In Christ, the God who demands is the God who enables and empowers us to live pleasing lives to him. People who possess by faith what we we could not earn. The surpassing gift of righteousness. And, And that's why as Christians, Jesus is so precious to us. This is why he's so central to us. That's why it's a joy and a privilege to come to this table and to know there's no greater thing than to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't stand quaking before Mount Sinai because we've put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find uh, uh, the door is open to come into the very presence of a holy God and he welcomes us in Christ. Every spiritual blessing now is ours in Christ. We're loved and accepted and by his spirit empowered to live lives that will be pleasing to him. Let's pray, shall we?